0: This is Affect Autism and we have Dave Nelson from the Community School in Atlanta with us to follow up from our podcast from a few weeks ago about process-oriented learning and affinities-based learning. Um, Dave told us that that is what they use a lot, that's how they apply the DIR model inspiring the students to think. So we're getting examples Um, from some of our DIR experts, and Dave, do you want to let us know how you guys apply the process-oriented learning at the community school?
1: Sure. I think I can give you a couple of examples, and really, when I hear the terms process-oriented learning and affinities-based learning, they're similar but different and actually cover a pretty wide range of... um, Things that you can do, do a different, pretty wide range of classes. But let me talk about something that's that in my mind is really mostly about process, most, mostly about uh, process learning as opposed to affinities-based learning. So I'm going to give you an example from actually this morning, uh, because I had this, uh, you know, this call on my mind, so I was thinking about it. So I teach a class. Uh, the title of the class is called Problem Solving. Uh, There's three uh, middle school age participants in this class. And what we have been doing is um, each week I generally present some kind of challenge for them. Uh, Depending on the week and how I'm assessing where each student is, it it might be something more challenging or something less challenging. Uh, But in weeks past, for example, I have challenged them to create... um, marble runs, uh, where there are actually, we're using a tennis ball, but a a ball run, so where they have to get a ball from one part of my room to another part of the room, and they can use anything in the room. Uh, What I did today, you may be familiar with a a, a team building challenge where uh, you have a pencil that has multiple strings tied to the pencil, and each person is holding one of the strings. And so the challenge for the group is to navigate the pencil into a cup that's sitting on the floor. So in order for that to work, everybody kind of has to work together. So I have a background in corporate team building and communication, and there's loads of those kinds of activities that come from that world. So what happened today was uh, within about two minutes of trying of of the group of three participants and and one supporting staff person, so four people trying to lower this pencil, uh, basically a big argument broke out. Uh, One person was frustrated that nobody else was helping, that he was the only one doing anything. Another person began trying to explain that in fact, just by standing there, they were in fact doing something, because nothing could have been done in isolation. In other words, one person couldn't have done that. Uh, Then another person complained that he was sick and tired of the first person always accusing him of acting like his little brother. And so the whole thing devolved into kind of an emotional mess. Everybody was frustrated, there was some shouting at each other. So um, in that moment, as difficult as it is for me to manage it as a a teacher or a leader, I also know that I'm right where I wanna be in terms of this whole idea of process-oriented learning. Because the pencil and the cup is essentially just a medium for the work that really needs to be done. Because the work that needs to be done for these three—and I'm going to lump them all together—they're very different and you know unique in their uh, in their individuality. But um, the work that they all need to be doing is focusing on emotional regulation, on co-regulating with each other, on communicating their point of view, and recognizing that their point of view is not the only point of view. Uh, so we would created a situation that was exactly perfect for that. Now it blew up a little bit larger than I had expected, more quickly than I expected. But at that point, we simply abandoned the activity, we sat down, I gave everybody sort of an opportunity to cool off in their own particular way, and then sometimes that means me changing the subject or making a little joke, sometimes it's just sitting quietly, but it's always a lot of me kind of reflecting the affect that I see going on in the room. It seems like you were really frustrated about that. I, heard, I could hear you yelling, and I know that meant you weren't happy with what was going on. So whatever it happens to be, I'm trying to help everybody feel empathized with and attuned to, and then as much as possible, help them re-engage with the other people in a conversation about what happened. Uh, so just to kind of give you the, the denouement of, of this activity, uh, two of the participants were kind of, of of the same mind, that the third participant was just too rigid and expecting that he, you know, his view should be uh, treated as the only view. Uh, and the person who had been kind of rigid and demanding really had to work hard to absorb that feedback and acknowledge that the way he was acting was actually pretty off-putting to the other people. And he wasn't able to get all the way there in this conversation but we had a lot of opportunity for all of them to be sitting in discomfort and ultimately to get a lot better at staying communicative and staying perspective taking in the midst of that discomfort. So for me, that is the essence of process learning. We could have been doing anything. We could have been building ball runs. As it turns out, we were trying to put a pencil in a cup.
0: Wow. That's, that's such a great example. And, um, when you started of course the first thing that came to my mind is wow my son would love to be in that room because he loves marble runs and he loves those videos on YouTube where the balls go and through all the maze and everything so I thought how fun is that Um, and realizing that you quickly shifted to um, mastering those early DIR competencies of, you know having being not only being self-regulated but as you said being able to co-regulate not just with an adult and caring person but with peers as well so that made me wonder what um, functional emotional developmental capacity area these children are generally in because it seems like to be doing that kind of task they must be up you know up in the four five six range
1: sure this particular group is um, yeah a relatively Talkative group certainly has some capacities in level five and level six. Um, at this and the, again, the three are not uh, by any means exactly the same. Uh, but several of them also are very quick to drop out of anything. They're very conflict avoidant. So even just down at level one, their ability to be regulated in the midst of any kind of um, any kind of challenge at all is. Uh, So one of them, for example, anytime he gets nervous, the first thing he says is, I'm going to take a nap. And he lies down and starts to close his eyes. So he's disconnecting. And, you know, in that case, then I've got an opportunity to sort of reflect with him that anytime something comes up that he doesn't feel really confident in, that tends to be his response. And he's now able to say, yes, actually, that's true. Um, So some of them have some uh, fairly significant constrictions, you know, down in, in level one, but most of them have pretty good mastery in terms of their engagement and their basic reciprocity. Uh, level four, shared social problem solving, is where the my rigid guy is really stuck. It's sort of his way or the highway. He's super bright has a lot of good ideas. He's generally right about a lot of his ideas and he can think at a very high level accepting that ability to integrate other people's ideas into his own. Um, So for this particular group, I think some people that we work with, it's you're kind of pushing up through, you have mastery at lower, at some level of mastery at lower levels and and you're pushing up into the next level. For this group, there are uh, there are pockets and gaps, so people who have some capacities at relatively high levels, level six, even level seven, eight, you know, up into kind of self awareness, but who still have difficulties with regulation and in particular with shared social problem solving. So I would say this class is really about working on level four. Um, how do I navigate the world and interact with other people to solve problems, get things done, um, and get to a particular goal. When everything is working great, then we actually are learning content in a more traditional way. So we learned about, you know, the physics of marble runs, and and you know, we dug into how all that stuff works. With that pencil activity, they're definitely learning sort of concrete ideas about how the world works. But that's really just a front for what we're actually working on, which is which is that shared social problem solving.
0: And do you find that doing activities like this over and over, um, not the exact same activity, but different types of activities where they do have to um, consider what the other person is thinking, is that how you really work on that particular challenge that you described in that particular boy who has a hard time taking another's perspective? Because I hear that as a common... Um, challenge from other parents that their child is really, has a really hard time um, not um, going along with when the group wants to do something else or doesn't want to do what they want to do? Is this the way to work towards that?
1: So uh, yeah, absolutely. And I have um, a, a colleague here in Atlanta, Dr. Barbara Dunbar, who's a developmental psychologist um, that has yeah mentored me for a number of years. And uh, she used to talk about Uh, kids who are supposedly perseverating or who are stuck on something. And she says, well, you may be on iteration 222 of the 10,000 iterations that they actually need to, to go through. So, Certainly, this is very um, incremental work. Uh, I I think, and I don't mean to say that just doing the same thing over and over again is going to get you somewhere, but I think the work of building that emotional resilience and that ability to gradually take perspective and to sit in discomfort, it takes a lot of recurring activities doing that. Um, What we're able to do in here, in, in this class, for example, is I'm now able to either at the end of this class or at the beginning of the next class, to debrief and reflect on what happened and to help all of them anticipate that this will probably happen again. Uh, So part of what's going on is they're getting better at understanding themselves and what tends to happen to themselves. So in addition to getting more durable, they'll also get better at advocating for themselves and anticipating what might happen and that's gonna give them sort of more strength and capability over time. Uh, but yes, it's, it's, I think it's labor-intensive work and it's certainly time-intensive work. Uh, but there's no question, all three of these particular students happen to be new to us this year, so even in two or three months, we've seen, I think, notable improvement in all of their ability to, to stick out stick it out in these situations.
0: And do you notice an increase in confidence as well uh, on their part because of it.
1: Yeah. A- absolutely, absolutely. And I think uh two of the in this particular group it's two boys and one girl and the two boys have gotten to a point of um actually sort of being willing to accept a challenge that they might actually be friends by the end of the year. So right now, they sort of talk about how they are so frustrated with each other and can never imagine being with each other, but you can also see that they're very drawn to each other. And it, it comes out in their increasing confidence, their willingness to take risks, being with somebody that frustrates them, or being willing to put themselves into a situation that might not turn out well. And that goes back to the R of DIR, which is, you know, we've created in this classroom a real sense of trust. They trust that I'm not going to leave them at the mercy of each other. They trust that, I, that if I over-challenge them, there's going to be a lot of support and debriefing um, and empathizing with what's going on for them. Uh, so I think the R piece of the equation can't be overlooked here, um, that they basically enjoy being in this class and they trust that that it's not going to be too hard most of the time.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great to hear. Um, I just want to ask two quick questions in the short time we have left about affinities-based learning, but also uh, a more general question. Um, you have, you know, an idea out there from some people, maybe of a more behavioral mindset, maybe um, the stereotypical Uh, militant kind of father, uh, who may not be a father, maybe a caregiver of some kind, that um, the stuff that you described when you were co-regulating is a type of coddling and these children need to be able to um, stand up for themselves and do this and that and by saying, oh I see you're frustrated, oh and that kind of thing. Um, And how do we translate to um, especially when you when you meet with parents who have a hard time doing that kind of co-regulation, maybe because of their own emotional restrictions, um, how is it that we can help people understand that the co-regulating part is maybe one of the most important pieces, and being able to sit in that discomfort and and accept and, these uncomfortable feelings? <laughs>
1: sure. Yeah, I I completely appreciate the perspective of that of that. Uh... Yeah, that imaginary parent that you're putting forth. Um, and, you know, I think the, the short answer is kind of, how has that been working for you? You know, if, if that kind of tough love was going to work, it would have been working by now. Um, and I think the reality is, is that there are some kids who have the, either because of their sensory regulatory profiles or other reasons, have the the durability to learn and grow in a more rule based or strict kind of setting uh, a lot of the kids that we know and work with don't have that they're not they don't have the emotional strength or the or the sort of physical regulatory strength to learn in that way and so it does become incumbent on us to sort of adjust with the idea that we all want our kids to get to that place it's not about coddling so that they never grow or get stronger. It's about recognizing that they are relatively, it's not a word I would typically use, but that they're relatively weak in that area and they need support. You know, the guy on crutches doesn't go right out onto the track and sprint. He's got to get, he's got to strengthen the muscles that are not strong yet. Uh, So I totally accept that that's hard uh, for People who have their, you know, their own particular history of um, how they were parented or the culture that they were raised in, and that's just something that needs ongoing support.
0: Okay. And um, do you want to just explain a little bit about you? You mentioned affinities-based learning being sure. a little bit different.
1: Yeah, I'll just briefly touch on affinities-based learning. So I, I, I think we, it, it hopefully is kind of the term affinities helps people understand that. This kind of learning is about building off of the things that, uh, that students are passionate about. Uh, and it may be subjects that they already have a lot of knowledge about or it may just be something that they're very interested in. And the idea is that all of us, we, we function, we're more likely to function at the top of our box when we're dealing in a domain that we really know a lot about. Uh, I get a lot more engaged and interested talking about, uh, you know, psychology and philosophy than I do about uh, physics and calculus. You know, those things are harder for me. I have to work harder to stay connected. So when you're talking about affinities-based learning, for a learner who's very challenged, for somebody who's struggling at the lower levels, these may be sort of moments of affinities. Uh, I work with a 16-year-old student who uh, barely speaks and is sort of very basic in his functioning. Uh, And he really likes Michael Jackson. So we spend a lot of time turning on and off Michael Jackson songs and dancing to those songs. It's something that he's passionate about. And the idea of saying, well, let's put that away so that we can do the really important work, it doesn't make sense. And as it turns out, I see this kid in the context of a public school. And sometimes when we have gone in to see him in his public school setting, before we take him to the room that we work in, he has been belted down into the chair so that he will stay at his desk. So we're actually sort of really building on the thing that he's passionate about. But affinities-based learning can also be a really deep dive into World War II or some very erudite subject, and it really depends on the developmental and cognitive level of the person you're working with. But the basic idea is that you're just like floor time. You're starting with where somebody is. You're building on what they really care about, And that gives them the best opportunity to function at the top of their developmental box.
0: Excellent. Well, I can't thank you enough for giving us uh, a little bit more elaboration on some of the stuff we touched on in the podcast about the community school. So thank you so much, Dave Nelson, for being with us today.
1: Absolutely. Thank you.